We've been building an argument over the last few weeks that as you follow certain, uh, follow the scriptures and read what's happening in people's lives, that the biographical sketches that you're running into in the text are building a story as well. They're telling us how a person actually makes it possible, how a person works their life out as they serve Jesus. And so uh, our, our goal on the wall, we, we, to, to, to simply state it, we would like to live like Jesus. If you could see that as the, as the simple sort of moniker to lay on your, on your future from, from here to your last breath or till you look into the sky and see a cloud the size of a man's hand beginning to approach from the, from the east. Until those days, may we just always say, today I would like to live like Jesus. A disciple is simply someone who imitates their master, someone who walks in their steps and today I declare that I would like to live like Jesus. So as we've been talking about this, we talked about walking like Enoch. Pastor Tim introduced us to this series and talked to us about walking like Enoch, who walked with God. And we talked about worshiping like Abel, who made a commitment to what he understood God desiring and walked forward with it, who, did, who acted in worship in a way that God called him to. Today we're going to talk about weeping. So last week I talked to you about working, like Nehemiah, and this week I'm talking to you about weeping. I think worshiping and walking were more fun topics. But I still want to talk to you about weeping because I think Jeremiah gives us a different picture of what this whole thing is about. Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 1, he says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah is the prophet who told them they would be taken into Babylon, who told the Judean tribes, Judah and Benjamin and bits and pieces of the, of the other ten that were still there. He told them that they would be going into captivity. He told them that there would be tremendous destruction and Jerusalem would be worn out, torn down, no bricks on top of each other. It would just be thrashed. This statement in chapter 9 is after that begins. As his own prophecies begin to be fulfilled and as he recognizes the future is still out there and more and more will be happening, Jeremiah is, telling, is, is seeing this and his heart is breaking. As he sees the prophecies he's declared to be true, his heart is beginning to break. We'll visit the book of Lamentations in a little bit, but he writes the book of Lamentations as it is actually fulfilled, as he sees the fruit of his own prophecies. Jeremiah wasn't happy to be giving people bad news. No one's happy to be delivering news like that. But Jeremiah was delivering the word from God. In, a, in an opportunity, a, a last opportunity for Israel to repent, change the direction they were headed, and go following after God. And so as we open up this morning, I want to talk to you about tears. There have been a lot of studies of tears lately. I don't remember, maybe it was one of you was telling me that they've begun to study tears and they think there are like 30 or 40 different varieties of tears, depending on your emotion. Think about that. Your tears are different. You don't just cry one kind of tear. You apparently cry a various, various kinds of tears. 
depending on the emotion. And you know tears come to well, can well to your eyes under lots of different circumstances, right? When babies are born, lots of times there are tears of joy in that moment. There's that first child, you know, you see your, your grandchild, you see your child, you hold your baby for the first time. Even some of the toughest big Marine Corps sort of fathers weep at that moment. Those are not sad tears. Those are not brokenhearted tears. Those are tears of joy. And the chemistry is different. It's crazy. How cool is our God that the chemistry of your tears matches your emotional output? Wild stuff. But I want to just cover just a simple little bit. You have constant tear production, right? If you stop producing tears, you have real big problems. When you blink your eyes, you can probably feel some right now. Just the fact that I'm talking about it, you're probably noticing your eyes are a little more watery than they were about a minute and a half ago. Just because you're recognizing this thing that's automatic is actually really automatically happening. And you're blinking extra and you realize, oh my goodness, there are tears in there. Don't do that too much. You'll get really started off your rocker in a minute. So you produce just tears that constantly rinse your eyes. There's lots of awesome stuff in there. There's some antibiotics in there. There's, there's some cool things that are keeping your eyes clear and clean, but mostly it's water. Mostly those tears are water. The cry reflex. Now, the cry reflex as a separate from weeping, so I've kind of tried to dis- dis- distinguish these two. The cry reflex is, oh, I was riding along on my bike and a gnat flew into my eye. What happens then? Your eye starts to produce tears. To try to wash it out. You get a piece of dirt in your eye. Your eyelash breaks off and sticks into your eye or grows in the wrong direction or whatever happens. Your eye begins to water. That's the cry reflex. Something's touching my eye and there's a reflex where you begin to produce tears. Those tears are mostly salty. They kind of push out some extra salt, a little more of those antibiotics just in case whatever's in there is going to be bad for you. And they're a different kind of tear. The last one are tears of weeping. Now, I want to talk about sorrowful tears when I talk about tears of weeping. Sorrowful tears. They're a completely different kind of tear. The wild thing about your tears is the hormones and things that are released by the stress that cause the tear are released in the tear. Your tears actually are one of the ways that your body releases those stress hormones and the, st- and the things that are, are actually bad for you, the chemistry of your body that's actually being built up under that stress or under that sorrow that you're feeling, actually released out through your tears. Man, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So when, you, when we talk about tears, when we talk about crying, what I want to talk about today, what I'd like to kind of touch on and, and keep us focused on is that last one, the kind of weeping from a broken heart. When we talk about letting your heart be broken by the things that break God's heart, about allowing ourselves to be touched by the world around us and the things that it's being confronted with. So why do we weep? Why, do your, why does your body do all this? Science has been studying it. Biologists have been studying it. Everybody's trying to figure it out. Nobody knows. Nobody knows why you cry. Nobody knows why your heart breaks when you see something sad. Scientifically, nobody knows. The scientific community is baffled by it. Other animals don't do it. A monkey dies, the other animals don't typically, other monkeys don't typically cry. With the the possible exception of gorillas. They are not absolutely certain about gorillas. But have you ever seen a gorilla kind of bat each other around? They don't look too upset about it. The human being is unique in this way. 
We are unique in this experience. There's a guy named Dr. William Frey. He's a biochemist. And he talks about these health benefits. So here you go. The reflex of tears, 98% water. Emotional tears contain stress hormones, which get excreted from the body through your crying. So here's my scientific backer. Here's my guy, Dr. Frey. But I want you to think for a minute. When you start to cry, when you finally finish, part of what it does, it blows off some of that pressure. It releases some of that steam. You start to feel a little bit different. You start to feel a little bit better. Additional studies are suggesting that crying actually stimulates the production of endorphins. Are you familiar with endorphins? So if crying and weeping has been brought on by this heartbreak, endorphins sort of return you to a more more uplifted sort of experience and feeling. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. If you get nothing else today, if, if you don't recognize why we weep or why, weep like Jeremiah or anything else, but if you can just remember you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That the design God put in your body is still being sought, as, sought after as a discovery of science. Bits and pieces of it keep coming out. And the more we discover, the more deep it seems, the more amazing that it is. We are amazing creatures. As I said, animals don't seem to do this. Animals don't seem to cry. But Jeremiah weeps for his people. So I want to take you to Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 20. Jeremiah is talking about the experience. He's talking about what he's been predicting, now finally arriving. And this is his comment in chapter 8, verse 20. We're just going to look at three verses in chapter 8, verse 20, 21, and 22. Verse 20. The harvest is past. The summer, the, the, the harvest is past. The summer is ended and we are not saved. Think if you're the prophet. You've been telling Israel, be careful. You're reaching the end of the rope. Be careful. You're reaching the end of the rope. Be careful. You're reaching the end of the rope. And then they reach the end of the rope. And God tells Jeremiah, that's it. Babylonians are coming. That's it. This cannot be turned around anymore. There is no more opportunity for repentance in this event. This is going to happen. How would you feel? Would you feel victorious? Yes! Proof that I'm right! Might you? There might be at least a little bit of, well, I'm glad I'm right. Being wrong is not as good as being right. Right? For Jeremiah, this simple little three-line phrase is the sharing of his heart. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. You guys have gone past the point of no return. And there's nothing more that can be done about it. As Jeremiah speaks of wishing his whole head was a pool of water so that he might cry day and night, this is what's motivating those tears. There's no more opportunity for Israel to go back. He weeps the moment, the times, the lost opportunity. You ever look out at our world and say, man, it's a mess. 
you ever look beyond the borders of our own country? Because there's enough messes here. But do you ever look out at the rest of the world out there and say, man, it's a mess. So many people closing their eyes every day without a recognition that they have the opportunity to be saved. Thousands of people going to their last breath, taking their last breath, and not knowing Jesus. Opportunity lost. Does it ever break your heart? Does it ever bring a tear to your eye? You see, what's happening with Jeremiah is that all of these people and their losses have become personal to him. And the fact that they're not going to be able to turn back has become personal to him. Jeremiah knows. He's already predicted that not all of them are going to die, but they're being swept off into captivity for the decisions that they've made that brought on this moment. Do people's lost opportunities ever get to you? I'm challenging you to weep like Jeremiah. Weep over the lost. Weep over the lost opportunity. Verse 21. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I'm mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. This is a sympathetic heart for the suffering of others. A sympathetic heart for the suffering of others. If you were going to weep with the same kind of heart as Jeremiah, you recognize those around you and the opportunities they've lost and what it's costing them. This is what's breaking this man's heart. He's called the weeping prophet. This is what's motivating that weeping. And lastly, verse 22. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician? Gilead is a little town across the Jordan River. So if you're familiar with Israel's geography, you've got the Mediterranean. You come up off the, the, the plains of the sea, you work your way up to Jerusalem. You work your way back down into the valley where the, where the Jordan River and the Dead Sea are. You'll go across that big valley, and on the other side, the hills begin to climb out again into what's known as what is Jordan today, but was all Israel then. In those hills is the city of Gilead. Gilead was a famous healing center at the time of Jeremiah. There was a balm, a literal something, a medication that, as it's been described, no one's been able to figure out what tree they were getting this from. It seems like it was a sap from a tree, but it apparently had some medicinal help, provided some medicinal help for people because people would go to Gilead to get healed. And he's using the metaphor that these people understand. He's saying, you know that there is a place to get healing. You know there's a place to have have your pains removed. You know there's a place where you can reach out to a physician and change the future of your wound. He's saying, don't you guys know there's a balm? Don't you know there's access to a physician? Why then is there no recovery? To the the health of the daughter of my people. 
Why? They refuse to help. So I want you to picture this, this walk with Jeremiah. Jeremiah becomes a prophet. God tells him, you're going to be a prophet of doom, basically. You're telling him all this bad stuff is coming. And so Jeremiah goes forward with his experience. He begins to talk to them about it. Nobody really likes what he's saying. In fact, at times he gets thrown into jail. At one point he gets thrown into the bottom of a cistern. He doesn't even know if he's going to survive. Finally, somebody comes and starts feeding him and rescues him there. His life is pretty horrific. He's been telling the truth. He's been telling what God says over and over again. Things have gotten worse and worse and worse for him. As he starts seeing these things begin to be fulfilled, if anybody would have the right to be thankful that these people are finally getting what they deserve, it's him. Because if you think about his life, from the minute he starts talking to these people, they start abusing him to the point where they're almost killing him. If there's anybody who has a right to say, you deserve what you get, I hope Nebuchadnezzar takes all of you. If there's anybody who has a right to stand up and say, I can't believe you people, I told you so, I told you so. It's him. Ever feel self-righteously vindicated? Do you weep then? I don't. This guy could have. But instead he weeps for the fact that they've missed this opportunity. His heart is breaking because it didn't have to happen. If you look at the things he's describing, he's saying this didn't have to happen. There was an opportunity to go to the physician. There was an opportunity to catch this, to catch the, this end before the final moment and turn back to God. So we're talking about weeping like Jeremiah. Even the people who have a right to claim their self-righteous judgment are called to let go of that and let their heart be broken for the loss these people are experiencing. Do you get it? No one has a self-righteous stand. It's simply the heart that breaks for the loss of those I see. Get it? So Jesus is riding up to Jerusalem one day. It's that famous moment as, as he's entering Jerusalem. This is a, a, a triumphal experience, a triumphal moment, an opportunity as Jesus is coming into the city where the temple is, where the presence of God has been manifest for centuries where the people of God have come to worship again and again and again. And as he crests the hill, probably at the top of the Mount of Olives, because when you come up on the top of the Mount of Olives, now Jerusalem is laid out in front of you. There's a valley below, and from that hill you can see in and across Jerusalem, which is raised up on, a, on an oddly shaped sort of peninsula that looks like a boat. It kind of has a bow on this, and it rises up to the... So if you were looking at it as a boat, the, the stern of that boat would be where the temple is. And as he's looking over this beautiful city, as he w- looks down on it as he arrives, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as hen gathers their broods under their wings? What's the last line? And you were not willing. What's breaking Jesus' heart as he's closing a door on Israel's future? As he's closing a door on the chosen relationship between Israel and God is that they don't see, they don't understand, they don't get it. In Luke chapter 19, it says this, As he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. He's the answer to the problem, right? He is the physician with the balm from Gilead. He is the answer to what they're looking for. And as he crests the hill, the knowledge that they're not interested in what he has to offer breaks his heart. One of the problems that the church has in the world is that we look at the world and we kind of step back and say, we told you, we told you you were all going to hell and now you are. Too bad. And our hearts aren't breaking for the people who are not making the choice. Our hearts aren't breaking for the people who are factually waving their finger in our faces. The person who atheistically looks at the believer and says, I can't believe you people. You people are nuts. And they, they, they demean the... Your heart should break for them. Our hearts should break for them to know that the person has gone so far down a road of distrusting God that they can't even see an opportunity or a possibility of his involvement in their life being transformative. They've never run into a Christian or they haven't run into enough of them that have given them evidence of the transformation that's possible. It should be a heartbreaking moment, but for most of us, it's not. For most of us, it's a moment of confrontation, and we want to get our argument over their argument. We don't stop to think. There's, there's an opportunity lost. There's a person. There's a person who, who's making decisions that will cause them the loss of their eternal life. As believers, this whole concept of weeping for the loss of others, it's kind of been lost on us. We have our crowd and we step into our group and we step away from the lost world and somehow we manage to close it out without it breaking our heart. So the challenge is to learn to weep like Jeremiah, who wept like Jesus. He crests the hill, he looks down on Jerusalem, and he begins to weep. And he says, how I wish today that you, of all people, would understand the way to peace. But now, It is too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. They've turned a corner and they can't go back. I've been thinking lately 
about witness and testimony. Have you ever considered that everything you do is a witness or at least a witnessing opportunity? The way you do your work, the way you treat your spouse, the way you speak to your children, the emails you write, the jokes you share or choose not to, the way you go about treating your neighbor, for goodness sakes, the way you mow your lawn, it all is saying something about something bigger than you. It all is testifying to who you serve and how that service is transforming you. You see, there's a, there's a real world out there who is really losing its way. There's a real possibility that someone in your life is making their final decision. There's a real opportunity to get involved in the process and help them make the turn in the right direction. We are called to be broken things that break the heart of God. We are called of God to be His representatives. And if the things that break His heart don't break ours, we have to ask why. And the answer to that why is pretty much always us. Our guy, Jeremiah, has seen the fall of Jerusalem. He's seen wave after wave after wave of people taken off in captivity. He himself, we think, by this point, has been forced to go to Egypt with a band of rebels from Israel. And in all of these things that are going on, Jeremiah begins to write another book. He writes the book of his laments. And as he begins to write the book of his laments, he starts to pour out his heart because he's saying to God, all of this stuff that I've delivered, all of this pain that I've talked about, all of these things that you asked me to do on your behalf are, have broken me and broken my heart. And it's like my food is bitter. It's like my water is bitter. There's no joy. I've, it sucked the life right out of me to be the messenger of such doom and gloom. And he says, I thought of my suffering and homelessness. And it's bitter. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. I've seen this thing happen and it's broken me. Yet I still dare to hope. He's seen Jerusalem fall. He's seen waves and waves and waves of captivity. He's seen one army after another come through and destroy what the other army didn't get to. Jerusalem lies in ruins. The temple has been ransacked and torn apart. 
And when he looks at it all, when he remembers it all as he's moving away, he says, I think of my homelessness. I've lost my home too. I think of all the trouble I've seen and it tears me up. But I still dare to have hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. And His mercies never cease. In spite of all of this, God is still God and God is still love and He still desires to bring mercy to His people. Even that ragtag remnant that got hauled off to Babylon, God has not forgotten. Even the Babylonians who have done this, God has not forgotten. He is a God who loves them, cares about them, is desirous to bring them mercy. He never ceases to bring mercy to the equation. And so I dare to have hope. I dare to have hope. This is the crazy thing about this. To be weeping for the lost so much so that your heart is breaking and at the same time have hope in Jesus. This is the, this is the wild thing about being in the middle of this controversy and this conflict. You know what's coming. You can watch as the world just seems to be winding up on us. As the, the clock keeps ticking and the world keeps getting worse and bad things keep happening and worse things keep happening. And as the struggle continues on, we feel for the people who are lost and we, our hearts rightly should break and we should pray and we should weep for those folks like Jesus did but not as those who have no hope. Because we have hope in eternal life. And we have the hope that even the, 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 that finger-wagging antagonist, like many before him, might be changed. Might recognize the love of God for him. Accept his grace and his mercy and be changed. So church, with David, king of Israel, remember that God watches the wanderings of his people. Now unless you would, unless you would shape that to be only the believer, we are all his people. Every person in every conflict is a child of God. So David is speaking of the personal experience in his life, but this is true of every life. The Islamic terrorists and the people they are terrorizing, the American soldier and the people he is shooting are all one family. The people you despise and the people you love are all one family. The people I don't ever want to see again and the people I'd like to see every day are all one family. And God numbers the wanderings of his family. And he puts their tears in a bottle. He records their record in a book. And when they cry out, 
their enemies will turn back. When the, 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 when the person who speaks the most harshest things, the most harsh things toward God, finally turns for home, the father meets him on the road. When the person who has the greatest hatred for the church finally says, I've been wrong, God meets him out on the road. And his enemies turn back. And this I can know because God is for me. And so it ends. To live like Jesus is to learn to walk with him like Enoch. To live like Jesus is to learn to worship him like Abel. To live like Jesus is to learn to throw your work forward like Nehemiah. And to let our hearts be broken. And let us weep like the prophet Jeremiah. Let's pray. Father God, this is a tough thing for us. Because none of us have our heart broken the way you do. I don't even think we could stand it. But I ask that you would begin to open our eyes to the things that break your heart. That you would bring the things around us that we might have an impact on before our eyes. And that our prayers would be full of our desire for the rescue of all of our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen.